Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are a grateful people. We're assembled here. We're your people. You are our God. And we thank you for your word. It's living, it's active, it's sharp. And God, we want it to be active and living in our lives. Thank you for all the diligence that uh, Adam had as he pursues your word in such a way that it teaches and instructs him, but then he brings it to teach and instruct us. So thank you for uh, raising him up as our angel, a messenger, if you will, uh, to bring us a word from you. We thank you, God. Help us not to mock the things that we've learned, but to be grateful for what we've received and as, uh, as necessary, living it out in the ways that this book of Hebrews uh, and all the other places we've gone has cha have challenged us. So, God, this is uh, your day. We are grateful. Help us to be alert. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right. So I am a yet-to-be-converted Israelite. I want you in a moment to build the case as for why you, a follower of Jesus, have the right to be in the presence of a holy God. While you think about that, let me just tell you. I hold in my hand a handwritten copy of the Bayshore meatloaf recipe. <laughs> teacher, fine teacher indeed. Well, you're, he claimed to be the Messiah. Uh, he's crucified, and frankly, I believe rightly so, because that's blasphemy, as it clearly says in our word. And you're telling me that you just, now you just have this relationship with, with God that just is so, like, interpersonal and warm, and you're not afraid of getting destroyed. Tell me, why should I believe like this? I never would have came to it without being called by the Holy Spirit on my own. The who? The Holy Spirit. Jesus mm -hmm. never heard of Well, yeah, but if you, if you believe in Christ, now you believe in the Holy Spirit, right? You said that. He's a Jew. Well, I thought you, oh, I thought you said you were a There's a Hebrew I'm word. yet to be converted. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I missed that. Yet to be Holy converted. Spirit? You mean like the angels, right? When you say Holy Spirit. You're talking about the angels, right? No. Oh, no. No? Now I'm in trouble. <laughs> but at least you got the ball rolling. Yeah, now I'm in trouble. Oh, yeah, that's what I think he's talking about. I think he's talking about angels. Yeah. Yeah. Remember, I'm, I'm a Jew, right? I'm not Adam. I'm, I'm a Jewish guy. Yeah, yeah. As a Jew, you would, of course, be um, raised in knowing the Torah um, completely. 
in all the prophecies about the coming Messiah. And as a person who's trying to explain to you why you should believe, you would probably start with the proofs of, see how he, his, he, Jesus and his life fulfilled all these prophecies. There's, and look at the numbers of, um, here's how many prophecies, and he, this is the prophecies that we know he's fulfilled, and there's no way, odds-wise, that anybody else in the whole wide world could have fulfilled that many of the prophecies and not be the Messiah. What if, what if I go into the Holy of Holies? I mean, I'm not even a priest. And you're talking like you can just be in God's presence like that? He tore the veil. He tore yeah, the veil. I, I, heard, I heard that. I heard the veil was torn. That's, well, because that's strange. Because then he opened up the Holy of Holies to those who believe yeah. in him. He died. He rose again. It was witnessed by over 500 people. And he rose and went to heaven. And that there is they know that. There are many who saw that. Well, why would Yahweh, I dare not even say his name, but why would Yahweh give us this beautiful temple and the, you know, all the all of those ornate furnishings and the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant and the, I got all these animals that I'm because supposed to Because that was the old covenant and Jesus is the new covenant and that is what was prophesied. Now all of those things point There's evidence. There's proof. Hmm. The chances of Jesus fulfilling those prophecies, three of those prophecies, yeah. is the same um, odds as putting a hole in a silver dollar and filling the state of Texas with silver dollars and telling somebody to find that gap, that one silver dollar. So as a Jew, I'd be like, Texas, silver dollar? But I see what you're saying. <laughs> 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 It'd be like taking a Roman coin and filling all of Rome. Yeah, uh-huh, yeah. So since yesterday you said we would be talking about Melchizedek, mm. would we be right in talking to you about the uh, Levitical priesthood? You mean the king of Salem? Yes. And the king of righteousness? Yes. Now we should talk about Melchizedek. Mm. By the way, just as a reminder... We've talked about how Jesus is superior to angels, and then he's superior to Moses and Aaron and the system. So turn with me to Hebrews 5, just to make sure we're on the same page there. The system being the Levitical priesthood, the sacrificial system, the seasonal system, the offerings, and the sacrifices, as a good Jewish believer would know. The priesthood in general, Jesus is superior to it. So could someone kindly read out loud Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1 through 4? Just 1 through 4. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way? For that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. And by reason hereof, he ought, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer for sins. And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he said unto him, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. One more. You just go ahead, one more. As he saith, also in another place, 
thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so what the writer, hello, good morning. What the writer of Hebrews has done is reminded us of what the priest is supposed to do. Because the priest is the mediator between you and Yahweh. And one of the priest's job is to humanize, not domesticate, but humanize the God-person relationship. Because God is not a human. And one thing that a true worshiper of Yahweh realizes is that God has every right to destroy him or her instantly. But to have another human with you to say, man, I know what it's like. I know it's tough because I sin against Yahweh too. To have another human with you, to sort of walk with you in that, to sort of almost like hold your hand in that process. That's one of the great things about a priest. That's why a priest was so comforting to a person. Because a priest could say, I know exactly what that's like. And that's why, you know, it says in Hebrews 5, uh, chapter or verse 2, that the priest is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray. Why? Because he himself is subject to weakness. Which is why the church today has to be so transparent about our need for grace. Because to the world, the church is full of, some people say they're full of holy people, they're full of good people, they're full of righteous people, they're full of hypocrites, all these things. And if the church, if the Christians in the church are out of touch with their own weakness, that gets communicated. So I try to really quick get behind the veil and just be like, hey, um, we're all kind of messed up. Because if I'm not messed up, I don't need Jesus. And if I don't need Jesus, I, I, why would I follow him? I am a mess. Do any of you in your basements or in your attic or whatever have a big bin that's just full of wires that you're afraid to throw away? <laughs> Me too. I have a big bin full of wires. Power adapters, old wires to my first generation iPhone, this, that. And I don't want to throw it away because what if, what if I need it, right? But that bin is a big, tangled, awful mess. I would have to contribute a one-month sabbatical to untangling all those wires. So I put that away. I, I don't want it out in front of me. I want it kind of in, in the back. We do this in our souls, too. You know, we, we sort of present a living room faith. But here comes Jesus, and he wants access to the whole house that is us. You ever read this little pamphlet called My Heart Christ's Home? Yeah. It's great. Yeah. And, and uh, basically, it's like if this, if this was my heart, just this room, everything we can see in here, we say, all right, Jesus, come into my heart. And Jesus comes in, and he goes, oh, this is really nice. you got a fireplace here, and you got this there. Yeah, it's pretty nice. Jesus, I vacuumed before you came over. He's like, yeah, you, you got some cobwebs here, and you got some dusty spots. We can take care of that, though. That's okay. Oh, good, Jesus. I'm so glad you love me and accept me as I am. I don't have to worry about anything before you, do I, Lord? No, you don't. Hey, Adam, uh-huh. What's in that closet back there? Nothing? <laughs> it's like, what's the worst thing you can say when you get pulled over? You're not going to look in the trunk, are you? <laughs> Jesus comes in. And it's really weird. The longer he's in here, the more focused he is on that closet back there. Adam, what's in there, Adam? Nothing. It's just, just a water heater and stuff. Jesus has more than just x-ray vision, right? He, he, like, he knows what's in there. And he, here's the other thing. He knows what it's doing to me. It's like, we really need to get in there and clean up. And I'm like, hey, Jesus, out of sight, out of mind. But Jesus, our great high priest, who is the human presence of God, knows exactly what it's like. Not to have a closet full of garbage, but to resist or... 
struggle as a human being with that sort of secret part. He knows what that's like. He was tempted to lie and cover up too, just as we are, except he didn't sin and he didn't have anything to cover up. He wants to get in there and clean up. And so I would say that yes, Jesus is superior to angels. Ding! Jesus is superior to the, the priesthood, which has gone well to this point, but is now superseded. Ding! But I also want to say that Jesus is superior to an unsympathetic God. Also very important for a monotheistic Jew in a polytheistic culture. A Jew is monotheistic. There's one God, Yahweh. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one God. They're surrounded by polytheists. A polytheist, poly meaning many, they believe there are all these different gods to keep happy. Right? And so in the, in the pagan culture, you've got all these different gods. And the New Testament is covered in references to all of these architectural pieces and historical artifacts that point to polytheism. We just don't see it because we're not looking for it necessarily. But all of the human beings in the world were looking for some sort of God that they could placate and be in right relationship with. And none of these gods were ever sympathetic. The sympathetic, the sympathetic side of Yahweh was most apparent in the priesthood, which is why the priesthood was so beautiful and made so much sense for so long. But they're surrounded by all these, all these sort of pantheistic sort of, you know, and this God is just out to destroy me, I've got to keep him happy. That's not Yahweh. And we know that Yahweh is sympathetic and empathetic in a way because he comes himself to our world, Jesus. And then the last thing I want to say is that Jesus is superior to our best efforts. Amen. Do you believe that? That we, that we are not bringing our best and then asking God to help it. That we are bringing ourselves and asking God to do it all through us. Okay? Jesus is superior. And then I would also say as we look ahead in uh, verse 5 and 6, it says, as we've already heard, in the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, again, quoting the psalm from, verse, from chapter 1, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And so Jesus knows what it's like to share in a heavenly calling. Have you ever thought about that? We talked about the heavenly calling a little while back. Hi, come on in. We talked about the heavenly calling. Jesus knows what it's like to receive a heavenly calling. Not to salvation, but to obedience to the Father. So Jesus even knows what it's like to get some sort of a sign or symbol from his dad and to go, okay, dad, that's what we're doing. Jesus knows what it's like to be us. Would somebody please, if you have um, NIV especially, could someone read chapter 5, verse 7 through 9? Uh, Hebrews chapter 5, sorry, chapter 5, verse 7 through 9. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be the high priest in the order. There's Melchizedek again. Now, the most powerful word, I think, in that little pericope, that little um, section, that little paragraph, is in verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Did God save him from death? God the Father could have saved him from death. Didn't. Something better. Jesus knows what it's like to be crying out in agony in prayer 
to a God who could do something and isn't. Can you relate to that? Yes. Have you ever cried out to God with such impassioned plea and you've even reminded him that, that he's God and that he's all-powerful and you've even reminded him that he could fix this? And he's not, have you ever had that before? If you haven't, you will. Jesus knows what that's like, too. I wonder, boy, if I, I would say 5, 7 through 9 might be one of my other favorite sections of Hebrews. Because it just reminds us of the humanity of, of God in Christ. He knows what it's like to be us. He knows what it's like to be you. And then there's that Melchizedek mentioned again, which we'll get to very soon, I promise. I promise I'm not dodging Melchizedek. It's a mess, but I'm not dodging it. Okay. Um, then Hebrews 5, 11. Could somebody read 11 through 14, please? Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though, for Wait, through... I just want to point out. <laughs> Do you hear how mean the writer of Hebrews has got? Did you hear that? I, you, you need to be offended by this. All right? <laughs> Let the word of God pierce. Okay, please continue. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. What do you want to do? Mm, go through 14. For everyone who partakes of only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food is for the mature, who be who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So I want you to note the wording here. Jesus knows what it's like to share in a heavenly calling. You are my son, today I have become your father. Jesus knows what it's like to be us, to have fervent prayers on earth that seem to go unanswered. Jesus doesn't know what it's like to be lazy, but he knows our laziness. He knows my laziness. And the writer of Hebrews gets rather pointed all of a sudden. You, if you put your name in there, it's even more, like, jarring. We have much to say about this, Adam, but it's hard to make it clear to you, because you, Adam, no longer, try, no longer try to understand. In fact, Adam, you ought to be a teacher by now. You need someone to yet teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. That would be like, you know, Barbie gave me this meatloaf recipe, but I don't know how to crack an egg. Right? I should be able to do this, but I forgot how eggs work. That's what the writer is saying when it comes to their faith. And I think we can all identify with the idea that when you have a little baby, a little baby eats milk, and then slowly you get to the bigger stuff. When, I, when we were raising our kids, they had these little things called graduates, little puffy cereals. They were kind of like alphabets or kind of like, kind of like the boring part of Lucky Charms, like just that oat filler, you know, between the Lucky Charms. By the way, Zach, my nine-year-old, calls Lucky Charms a carton of Luckies. <laughs> and more than once have my children gone through and just taken out all the marshmallows and left the insulation. So, so I told that story uh, at renovation, and uh, the next week somebody showed up with a huge bag of just marshmallows, <laughs> which you should not eat a bowl of without a prescription. It was marshmallow overload. But when our kids were able to go from bottle feeding, breastfeeding, to solid food, there was this in-between where we gave them these little puffy things called graduates, and you put it on your tongue and it dissolves instantly. So they're learning how to handle solid food, but they're also not dealing with a choking hazard. And then you're able to like give them some Cheerios, and then when you're able to give them, give them some goldfish crackers, 
And then like, like it just gets almost like easier and easier. And you watch and then you're, next thing you know, your kid's trying to cut their own spaghetti and their steak. And now, like I've got two almost teenagers with me. I, I don't know what they've been eating. I took them to Dollar General and I said, get 10 things. And then I just turned away. <laughs> but they're taking care of themselves, you know? I don't have to be like, you guys should eat. You know, they know how to do it. They've grown. It should be the same way with our faith. You know, if I've come to Bayshore for a year or two, I mean, that's a good start. But if I've been here 10, 20 years, why don't I have big chunks of the scripture memorized? You know, why am I not seeing more fruit of the Spirit in my life? Why am I not growing in this area or that? Am I praying the same prayer requests year after year after year? And is it that God isn't listening or is it that I'm not participating with God in the answer? You know, these are just hard questions. But, but the writer of Hebrews is not here to just impress us with doctrine. The writer of Hebrews wants our lives to be changed because of this great high priest. And every excuse we might take off, you know, like, well, Jesus isn't that big of a deal. No, he's superior. Well, Jesus doesn't know what it's like to be me. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. Well, I've been really busy lately. I don't have the time. Nope. We're lazy. Raise your hand if you're kind of lazy about your faith sometimes. Okay. Even the pastors are raising their hands, all right? So you see how we're all at the same level. Listen, there's Jesus, and then there's the rest of us. So destroy the, the sub-hierarchy and just focus on Jesus. So here's my question for you. At what point does a follower of Jesus stop growing in their faith? Never. Are you sure about that? Theoretically. Theoretically, right. Now, John Wesley fought for, you know, he wasn't even sure what he thought about sinless perfection. But anyway. like that Sure, yeah. Is it possible to stop growing in your faith? Absolutely. In fact, it's not just possible to stop growing in your faith. I would say it's possible to be at a stopping point for like one second. Then after that, it's retrograde, baby. You're going backwards. It doesn't mean that you've lost your salvation, right? I mean... I mean, we're not talking about just this little tiny line, but like at some point, like if you don't keep moving forward, the gravity of this world, spiritually speaking, is just going to take you. We are dealing with gravitational pull and forces and spiritual physics that we don't even think about. So no wonder Jesus is like, look at me, hold on to me, press on. And then he's serving his word to us in this way, saying, don't stop. Look at chapter 6. The writer says, therefore... Let us move beyond the elementary teachings. He's getting encouraging now. Do you see this? He's reminding us that we're, we don't have to be stuck where we are. Move on beyond the elementary teachings about Christ. And be taken forward into maturity. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God. Instruction about cleansing rites, the laying out of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, meaning with God's help, we'll do it. Now this is interesting to me. We won't take a lot of time on this. But isn't it interesting how sometimes in our faith practice, we keep laying the foundation of a house again and again and again when God wants us to be up to the third or fourth story? Do you, do you get the allegory? Do you, do you kind of get what I'm saying? Like he wants us to be building up, up, up and grow in our faith. And we keep going back and redoing the foundation. Oh, no. I mean, I had that kind of experience. I came to Christ somewhere in like age 13 area. But I remember, like, going up to the altar three or four more times just to make sure, you know, like, okay, right? Wonderful, wonderful. I built the foundation enough. Stand on it firmly. Stand on your salvation. Stand on the rock that is Jesus and keep going higher, higher, higher. And do it with God's help. And be encouraged in this. This isn't a guilt trip from the writer or me. This is an encouragement. Like, he gives you everything you need to move forward. And then, again, the writer of Hebrews gets a little pointed in verse 4. They say it's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, 
who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. Somebody texted me about this verse a few days ago, and I believe their question was, does that mean that someone could be saved, lose their salvation, and automatically be disqualified never to get it again? I don't think so. Because I think the writer is using the word impossible in a way that you or I would. Like, like oh, you know, i got to drive home tonight or tomorrow morning. And so I'll say, okay, I'll be home in about three and a half hours. And if, if you know, somebody said, well, Adam, it's going to take you ten hours, I'd say, huh, that's impossible. Well, sure it is. It's possible. It's just not likely. I think that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Maybe the writer of Hebrews is saying, if you've really tasted this heavenly gift, if you've really dove deep into living you know, and following Christ in the Spirit, you have to wonder if you just back away from that all of a sudden, were you really living it or was it just surface? I think that's what's being said here. But at the end of the day, you and I are not God. I don't decide who gets saved and who doesn't. He does. Um, yeah. Second part of verse 6. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again, subjecting him to public disgrace. We're going to talk about re-crucifixion in a little bit. And then a great verse, verse 7 for last night's rainstorm. Could someone read verse 7 and 8? Hebrews chapter 6, verse 7 and 8. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to, to those for whom it, it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Mm -hmm. So, again, accountability, growth, change. <laughs> At, bless you. At what point does a follower of Jesus stop growing in their faith? I would say as soon as they stop leaning into their faith. So keep leaning into your faith. You leave here with a precious gift. Go and change the world with this gift. Now let's talk about Melchizedek. Some people say Melchizedek, some people say Melchizedek, some people say Melchizedek, I'm sure. You all know who he is, right? Neither do we. we. We have a little bit of information on it, but again, here comes Hebrews being all troublesome. So turn me to Genesis chapter 14. You go to Genesis 14 um, while I read verses uh, 1 through 3 of chapter 7. See if you can listen and turn simultaneously. So the writer has already mentioned Melchizedek three times, that Jesus has come from the priesthood of Melchizedek. Then we get to chapter 7, and Hebrews 7, as you're turning to Genesis 14, Hebrews 7 says, This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham, returning from the defeat of the kings, and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, which means king of peace without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life. Resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. So, Genesis 14, 17 through 20. If someone kindly read that out loud, loud and strong, with conviction. After Abram returned from defeating... <coughs> oh boy, couldn't... That guy. Oh, oh, let me give you a tip on um, big Bible words. Just plow through them like you know how they're said. Seriously, just fake your way through them. Keter Lomer. Yes! <laughs> and kings allied with him. And 
and the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley. Then Machalzadik, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abraham, Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you're reading through the Genesis account. You may not have even noticed this before, but all of a sudden this high priest shows up and has a little church service with Abraham, Abram. And there's even an offering, right? Did you see that? It's a tenth of everything. So they pass the plate while they sing Just As I Am. It's a beautiful church service, right? And so Melchizedek doesn't really show up after that, not in any way that gives us much more meaning than that, besides what we see in Genesis and what we read about back in, um, in Hebrews 7. But the, but the writer of Hebrews, again, the audience is who? Probably Jews who have been converted. Definitely people who know Jewish history and know Melchizedek. And so when I ask the question, when I say Melchizedek, you know who he is, right? We in this room, thousands of years removed, go, no. But for those people, they go, oh, sure, Melchizedek. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that guy's cool. Yeah, he's an usher. He's got an offering plate. And he's, and he's a priest. And he's a priest, too. And so the writer of Hebrews is sort of bringing us to Melchizedek because he's now getting into the deeper part of the priesthood of Jesus, but he wants to make sure that we understand that even the lineage of the priesthood of Jesus has a greater, greater sort of meaning and impact than Moses and Aaron, especially the Aaronic priesthood. And so to, to some, just because of time, Basically, what Melchizedek does is it answers the priesthood question. Meaning, how could Jesus, a great high priest who's so perfect, come from a line of imperfect priests? There needs to be some sort of a cleansing of the, of the priesthood. Because especially to a Jewish person, person, lineage matters. That's why Matthew, the first part of the Gospel of Matthew, is so detailed. We've got to have this lineage. We've got to be able to draw it out. Um, of course, we have to have a priest who is superior to Aaron in his line. And of course, like all things, it's not about Melchizedek. It's about Jesus. That's why Melchizedek is said to be like a son of God. So Melchizedek points to Christ, another priest, which we see in verse uh, 15. The writer says, And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears. So Jesus, again, is the goal, not Melchizedek. It's a sign. It's a semiotic. And even if Melchizedek was the best priest, and maybe a Jewish person would say, well, why don't we just follow Melchizedek? He, you're telling me he's so great. There's one thing Melchizedek doesn't have, incarnation. You know what carne means? Flesh, meat. Like if you ever go to a really good authentic Mexican restaurant and they offer you carne de burro, that's no. donkey meat. Right, very good. So the incarnation is literally God putting on meat. Carne, flesh, meat. Jesus is the incarnate priest. Melchizedek does not know what it's like to be you. Does Jesus know what it's like to be you? Yes. Why? He's human, right? Does Jesus know God? Better than Melchizedek, because he is God. He's God in the flesh. So if you just look at Hebrews 7.11, like so many of the other arguments that the writer has set up, there's this thing where 
They'll introduce angels, Moses, Joshua, Aaron, Melchizedek, get us all on the same page, and then talk about why Jesus is better. So look at Hebrews 7.11. 7.11. I took the boys to 7.11 for Slurpee Day on July 11th. It was a free Slurpee. I had a Werner's Slurpee. I love Werner's. When I was a kid, Grandma would heat up a pan of Werner's, and I would drink it, and I'd feel instantly better. Whatever was ailing me. And, by the by, one of my favorite, like, weird concoctions is burners and milk. So good. Prove me wrong. Ice cream is good, too. But burners and milk. Boston Cooler, that's right. Who said that? You know your, you know your stuff. You know what I'm talking about. We're having church right here. Yeah, it's good. It's good. I would suggest a 60-40 combination, 60 on the burners. If it's too spicy, you can back it up. You get burners pancakes and toss it. Burners pancakes? I'm in. I at least want to try. And they have burners at the McDonald's in town. Is there anything else we need? Okay. Are you, uh, and by the way, yeah, anyway, no, forget it. Um, Hebrews 7.11. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed, the law given to the people established that priesthood. So like, it's not like God didn't know what he was doing. This was on purpose. The writer asks, why was there still need for another priest to come? Why did Melchizedek come see Abraham? Why did Melchizedek show up in history if the Levitical priesthood was so perfect? This is making a Jewish person start to scratch their head. Verse 12, for when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belongs to a different tribe. And no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar, for it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. See what he's doing? He's separating the priesthood of Jesus from everything else. And what we've said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Pause. What if Melchizedek came for the simple purpose of setting up a Jewish person to see that God could actually do an unexpected thing? Because they all agreed that Melchizedek showed up and did this unexpected thing, and now the writer of Hebrews is unlocking as to why that happened. Well, you see why that happened, right? Because the Aaronic priesthood was great, but it wasn't perfect. So you, so you say to a Jewish person, Jesus is the new and better priest. And a Jewish person says, why would you send a new and better priest? Why would Yahweh do that? And then the writer of Hebrews says, well, why did Yahweh do that with Melchizedek? Which makes a Jewish person go, whoa. What if Melchizedek is just set up for what's next? Let's talk about your life for a second. The unexpected happens. The unexplainable takes place. God does something mysterious in you. I don't know why, but he's got me here. I don't know why, but he's leading me this way. I don't know why, but we moved to this place. What if it's just a setup for what's next? Who are we dealing with here? Only the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. Yeah, but can I trust him with my job plans? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, 7.18. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. Again, a Jewish person would say, what do you mean weak and useless? And then parenthetically, verse 19, don't you agree the law made nothing perfect? Yeah. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Whew, so much there. Jump ahead to verse uh, 26. Could someone read, please, verse 26 
through 28. 26 through 28. Hebrews 7, 26 through 28, please. For this is the kind of high priest we need, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins and then for those of the people. He did this once for all time when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the promise of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son who has been perfected forever. Okay. Just that verse, Hebrews 7, 26. Another favorite little chunk of Hebrews of mine. We need a better high priest than Aaron. We need a better high priest than Melchizedek. In fact, we need one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. That would be a good memorization, too, just to memorize that little chunk. Because if you're praying and you want to just adore Jesus for who he is, you can tell him he's great, but what if you focused in your prayer on these words? Jesus, you are holy, which means that you are completely different from this world that I'm in right now. You are, you are holy. You are, you are perfect. You are complete. You need nothing. If you're praying that, you start to realize just how strong and perfect and complete and integral Jesus is. Jesus, you are blameless, and thank you that you accept me even though I'm not blameless. Thank you that I deserve all this blame, and you in your clean slate perfection, instead of staying isolated from me in your holiness, you actually start, you, you take on my blame. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus, you are pure. I have a mind that is muddled with impure thoughts. I got anger, rage, malice, lust, greed, envy. I got negativity, I got all kinds of garbage in there. And it, it just drags me down. Jesus, you are pure. You, you don't struggle with that like I do. Which is why I need your purity in me so that I can live different tomorrow. Because tomorrow's got to be better than what I just did today. I need your purity, Jesus. Jesus, you are set apart from sinners. You're one of us, but you can't possibly be exactly like us because otherwise you wouldn't be a perfect and sinless high priest. You know, you're, he's, he's like me. Jesus, you're like me. I know that. But at the same time, you were set apart. But remember what it says in Hebrews chapter 2, that though he is set apart from us, he's not ashamed to call me brother and sister. And then Jesus, you're not here right now in the flesh, post-resurrection. You're not still walking around showing us the holes in your hands. It's like you're exalted above the heavens. Where's Jesus at right now? Right here with God the Father. Just making everything go, interceding for you by name. Take a minute, find a couple people, consider this list, and just what attribute sticks out to you and why? Maybe just a few minutes. Just give you a chance to stretch and hit the restroom if you want before we bring it home. Just take five minutes, share with somebody of these attributes, which one just really speaks to you? Which one is just good for your heart to hear right now? What is God talking to you about in these attributes? Go.
set apart? Who said exalted? In any of your group, did you talk about how they seem a little redundant? Yeah. yeah very good. And why would the writer of Hebrews take the time to do that? No, I don't think it's to impress. No. No, because, because think about the order of operations here. Holy, holy, holy. He's in heaven. Jesus, Jesus has always existed, yes? He comes to earth without the blame of Adam. You are born in blame. He stays pure through his entire life. He never has an impure moment. He is set apart from sinners in that he's on that cross by himself. We should have all been crucified with him. He is exalted above the heavens. I'm not. It says in the scripture that I'm seated with Christ in the heavenly places. But See, these are all different. These are all remarkably different things. To put it another way, he started pure and stayed pure and left pure. How did it work with the first Adam? He started pure, did not stay pure. How does it start with every human being? We don't start pure. We don't, because we're born with the sin of Adam. So we can't stay pure. So we can't possibly leave pure. I need a priest. So in Hebrews 9 which, again, we don't have the time to get into. It reminds us of the worship in the early tabernacle and how they used to fix the purity problem. And they would use the blood of bulls and goats and sacrifices. And, and so, just a quick note, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 9 is not knocking the Levitical temple um, tabernacle system. They actually show appreciation for the order. Like, you know, he talks about all this stuff and just how kind of neat it is. He appreciates it, but he appreciates it in light of what it points towards, in light of the semiotic, which is Christ. And you can read about this in Exodus 25, 37, 40. Of course, you read about it in Leviticus. But probably the key verse in this section is 922. 
Hebrews 9.22 says, The law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. So I'm going to trust in your basic Old Testament knowledge of the function of blood in, in paying for sin. Like if there, if there is a sin, there has to be a death, there has to be a penalty. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Please bear in mind that system, that understanding without blood, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. That remains with Christ. Because Christ, very importantly, shed his blood. What's the difference between the blood of Christ and the blood of bulls and goats? It's pure, and, there, and there's a transference, but it's a transference to a human that chooses to identify with us. The bull and the goat, they got no idea what's going on. And though they covered his blood cleansed, that was only a temporary covering atonement. Very temporary, yes. Very, very temporary. So one of the members on our board, like our board of administration, or we call it our leadership team at our church, comes from um, Ghana, a, a little sub-village of Ghana. I can't share too much, but he grew up in a super spiritual village. The river that ran through his village had a spirit. And there was a priest in his village, but it was not like this kind of priest or a, or a Catholic priest. It was like a priest that was pleasing the gods. And every village has like a leader, like a mayor. Like I don't remember what the title is. The chief. It's the chief. And so... This, this man that I'm talking about, his name is Ben, was in line to be the chief through lineage. And he encounters Jesus. He comes to British Columbia to do his master's and doctoral work and goes to InterVarsity, or uh, InterVarsity, what is it called? InterVarsity Christian Fellowship? Yeah, InterVarsity. Yeah, okay. Um, he finds Christ. And so he goes back home and he's like, I can't just ascend to this sort of bizarre spirituality. Well, his brother, who would have been in line, was going to take it. But the problem is his brother also came to faith in Christ. <laughs> Somewhere else, over here, they got back together. And so Ben and his brother say, what do we do? And so what do they do when they're in trouble? They pray. And so they start holding prayer meetings in their town square. And the village starts coming to faith in Christ. Who's going to be the chief? Well, here's the thing. There's a cousin over here on the family tree. The problem is... That cousin is a raging alcoholic. He's either drunk or asleep. Like, it's bad. And he can't become the chief. And he would wake up, get his buzz on, and basically stumble through life for the rest of the day. That's what he did every day. It was laughable. It was Peter. And they would pray. They would pray for guidance, direction. What do we do with all this, Lord? You're our Lord now. What do we do? And by the way, the priest would go and would bring the sacrifice of animals into their temple in their village, the tabernacle, whatever they called it. So they're praying about what to do. And all of a sudden, Peter, out of nowhere, at one of their prayer meetings, stumbles in and sits down. Hi, Peter. And people are laughing. They don't take this serious at all. Hi, Peter, what are you doing here? And he's like, I see what's happening and I want to be part of it. And Peter accepts Christ. <laughs> so now everybody and has not drank a drop since. That was like 1975. So everybody in the village who's in line for leadership is a follower of Jesus. So they go and they destroy the temple. They destroy all the artifacts of this false worship. And one of the big things that got Ben to this reality is the reminder that the blood of bulls and goats, nothing atones but the blood of Jesus. 
So talk about one person or two people or maybe three people coming to Christ and a whole corner of the world changing. And so I love having Ben on our board because Ben will say things like, Adam, I've seen it all. Nothing's going to freak me out. He has incredible faith. He knows. It's sort of like the testimony we heard a couple days ago. He knows what he believes and why. Whereas I'm wishy-washy maybe sometimes about the sacrifice of Christ, I really do believe uh, that Jesus paid it all. So I want to remind us, Jesus pays it all. 9.24. It says that Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. So Jesus is a superior priest, a superior sacrifice, and is now going to what the temple was made for to begin with, which was the actual presence of God. So Jesus didn't go to the copy. Jesus isn't the copy. Jesus isn't doing the temporary. He's the real deal with the real sacrifice in the real place. Jesus paid it all. Look at Hebrews 10.1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have to feel guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And you can go on from there. Does Jesus pay it all? Yes. Jesus pays it all. We don't bring the sacrifice of praise, as you will tonight in the tabernacle, to pay for the bad things we've done. You're describing a bizarre Christian karma. I'd better worship Jesus and say some good words, because I said some really negative, mean words before. I need to balance it out. That's not what we're doing. We're not earning our salvation or, or, or saying, look how good I can sing, Jesus. Do you want me around now? No. Jesus pays it all, not me. My sacrifice of praise is merely a response to the fact that he's paid the entire price. I'm thankful. I'm thankful. And then 1018. I know Jesus paid it all, but boy, this sin is pretty bad. 1018. Where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Guess what Satan would want you to think? He would want you to think it's not enough. Look at verse 17. This is God speaking. With this kind of sacrifice, their sin and lawless acts, I will remember no more. Guess what Satan wants to do? He wants to remind you of what God has intentionally forgotten about. And he's really stinking good at it. Don't think that Satan is some novice, some B-team player. He's not a minor leaguer. He's been at this a lot longer than you. And don't think that Satan doesn't know his scripture. Do you remember when Jesus is in the garden, or not in the garden, in the wilderness being tempted? What does Satan do? Just quote scripture. Yeah. All he does is take the word of God and just twist it a little bit. And don't think that the demons don't believe. If you just say, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, great. The demons also believe and tremble. This is more than just mere assent. You're, if you follow Jesus, you're actually claiming that his blood is yours. On you, paid in full. As Philip Yancey says, this is the best thing we got. I love Philip Yancey. He's actually honest about his faith. He struggles because faith and doubt 
co-mingle on purpose. And Yancey says one of the things I love about Christianity is it's the best thing we got. Meaning you try to find a better religious system that answers all these questions and yet makes God personal, it can't. So let's talk about Hebrews and faith. I bet you all have heard messages, you've studied Hebrews 11. We're not going to go through it, but it's almost like it's almost like the credits to Act 1 is kind of how I see it. You know, before we're really jumping into this new covenant, you've got this whole thing of like all these heroes of the faith to which all these wonderful things happen. So in Hebrews 10.39, just to set it up, the writer reminds us to persevere in faith. That we don't belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. <clears throat> Agree or disagree? By its nature, faith is very difficult. Do you agree? Doesn't faith have to be difficult to be faith? I mean, uh, let's try a trust fall. No, let's not. <laughs> but wait, think about how much faith you've already carried out this morning. How many of you checked the chair before you sat in it? You did? What, you, what were you checking for? The legs were sitting balanced. So you noticed that something was off. Okay. Otherwise, you wouldn't have, right? And you noticed something was off. Is that the same chair you're sitting in now? I did sit in it. You did, but then you moved? Or you're sitting in it right now? I'm sitting in it. So if you wiggle right now, you could... Don't do that. Like a Jenga tower, you well, should Well, you know that. how sometimes you put pressure on something? Oh, yeah. And then it uh -huh. distributes uh -huh. it evenly? Uh-huh. So what is your faith in right now? <laughs> your faith is in your equilibrium. Because you're sitting there, easy does it, easy does it. Getting a core workout, keeping those legs... How much faith you put in this metal thing? Didn't even think about it. You sat right down. Now, let's say that this. Let's say that this was I don't know. Sitting on two planks that just ran across two buildings, and it was just that chair. All right, and you're up forty feet. No, that's a little different. That requires a little more faith because you're thinking to yourself, well, the worst thing that could happen is I fall. And then I get back up. You know, big deal. Or this. How many of you have gone on the zipline? Just raise your hand if you've gone on the zipline. How many of you, in going on the zipline, held on for dear life? And what did you hold on to? Kidding, <laughs> right? As if, as if your hands were doing any of the work. All that load was on the harness. Your hands were doing that because your brain was like, I'm scared. And I want to feel better. And if the harness failed, you would whoop slide right down. But yet we're, we just want to hold on. We want to hold on so bad. And your hands are doing nothing at that point. It's all on the harness. It's faith. Kierkegaard, one of my favorite philosophers, because he's kind of moody sometimes. Kierkegaard makes the argument that you have to have doubt in order to have faith. You, there has to be an element of doubt. There has to be something about this that's just not believable. Otherwise, we don't need faith. You had, you're the only person, what's your name? Julie. Julie, all of a sudden you introduce doubt, and her faith system in her chair is completely different than everybody else's. She doubted that thing to hold her up, so she checked it, checked it, checked it. And your doubts were relieved, and you put your faith in that chair. And the truth is, I doubt myself. So when I doubt myself, what I believe in, what I have faith in, mm -hmm. also has an element of doubt, because I'm so often wrong. Yeah, me too. But who isn't wrong? Sunday school answer, Jesus, right? So my weakness is a strength when it comes to faith. 
He works in it. Yeah. In my weakness. Of course. He glory. He actually enjoys it. So just read through Hebrews 11. Don't be afraid of your doubts. You know, I, I've had a couple conversations with people. One who's concerned about a child showing questions, like asking hard questions about the faith. Um, I would encourage your child to ask those questions. I would. And, and don't, don't be too afraid of that. Like, let them wrestle with it. Let them build this faith with Christ up on their own. Officer. <laughs> um, okay, so and when you talk about doubts and not being afraid of them, yeah. what if you're trying to be faithful and you have the doubt of, mm -hmm. I, I know I should pray, mm -hmm. but I'm not totally sure that God's there. Mm. What am I praying to? How do you address that for yourself and for others? Mm -hmm. uh, the simplest thing that I tell you is just do it anyway. Do it as if he's there. It's the whole, I believe, help my unbelief. And even tell him, God, sometimes I'm not even sure if you're listening, but I know you are. So can you just help me to live in that faith? Yeah. It seems like a scary thing. It seems like you'd be struck down instantly. Because it does say in the scripture, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Think about how much faith you're showing when you have an honest conversation with God like Habakkuk. Habakkuk was so faithful in that moment. He's not arrogant, but he's honest. Please be honest with your Lord. He knows anyway. Your, your conversations will be much deeper if you are just honest with him. He met Thomas with me. Thomas? Oh, Doubting Thomas? Yeah. I love Doubting Thomas. I think he's my patron saint. I don't know if we're allowed to have that in Methodism, but like, <laughs> we need Thomas. Because you know what's great? You know why I respect Thomas? He really wanted to know why he believed what he believed. Same thing that, that, that a daughter or son might be saying. You know, unless I put my hand here or here, I'm not going to buy it. The reason we're afraid of that, and perhaps rightly so, is because sometimes that's gone bad. Someone says, well, I, I've asked God to give me proof of his, his, of his existence, and he didn't do it. Ergo, I'm done. That's heartbreaking, man. Jesus didn't disqualify him for that. He took the time to help him get through it. Yeah, he did. Here you so go. He could have been, well, if you don't believe, you're, you're lost. He could have. He said, get out of here, man. You're fired. He doesn't do that. He says, blessed are you that you've seen, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe." Okay, so these are your tools at your disposal. Because mm -hmm. I don't have like, the knowledge to like, as much to like, oh, totally. explain. I'm afraid some of the brilliant things my 12-year-old says, I think he's going to outpace me in a couple years. But he does like actually, I mean, I feel privileged because yeah. I have that, yes. that he actually will yes. talk to me about. Yes, things. exactly. So that's like an okay. advantage, I feel like. But Great. So you got three tools at your disposal. Um, um, one, you, you can pray for them. Yeah. Just as, as soon as that, like right now, let's say like right now, you're I, I can sense that your fear is being triggered, and rightly so. What do you do in that moment? Jesus, here it is. Here, take this, take this. This is your problem, not mine. <clears throat> Two, you've got to love them. They have to know that you love them through this, and that you aren't disappointed in them as a Christian mom or dad that they aren't turning out to be. You can't show That's only going to make it worse. You, they have to know that you love them because they're going to look back they need to see that you love them with the love of Christ most of all. And then, and then third, it's not your job to convince. Whose job is it to convince? Holy it's the Spirit. Holy Spirit. Okay. You are not Holy Spirit Junior. Yeah. One more thing, sorry. No, you're okay. It's all right. So, like, what about, like, church on Sunday? Like, yeah. is there, like, no, I'm not going. Like, I you don't know. know. Case by case, because. I, I just, I mean, I'm, 
I don't want to like, I want to give him his space. Yeah. But I don't want to like back off on standing firm on what I believe in I and the rules and boundaries that I have in my house. Yeah. It's just, I don't know. You pray for wisdom because yeah. you can find stories where the kid got dragged to church and loved it and hated it. Yeah. I got dragged to church when I was young, but I found a reason to love it. He doesn't I got it. <laughs> right. So you try to find a reason for them to love it. But there are also stories where you let them stay home and their faith is even deeper. I mean, it can go so many different ways. So He does like youth groups and like, he does all that. Yeah. But I think it's more of like for like social Just tell the pastor to start mentioning Fortnite. Bring Fortnite into the message. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's pray really quick right now. Just take 30 seconds. Jesus, we pray for all of those who are far from you, especially our kids, and we lift them up to you in great faith. Uh, we believe, help our unbelief. We know that you are the Lord. You are spirit. You are Father. You are the blessed three in one. We're going to trust you with these things and trust that you'll give us wisdom as parents and grandparents to know just how to interact in the moment. We trust that your word will be living and active in us and able to flow out at just the right time and just the right way and help us to show your unconditional love, but also help us to show what we're holding on to and why we believe what we believe. May, be, may we be a witness to, to even our own households with your strength and for your glory. Amen. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, back here. 30 seconds. Go for it. You can see the sound as hard as you want. see us? I don't know. Like, my mom is, is dead. She's in heaven. She's alive. But I don't, I don't know if she can... I don't know. I would, would have loved to get into that. We just don't have time. And then anticipate discipline. The scripture says in Hebrews that um, God the Father disciplines us as sons and daughters. And what kind of father just lets his kids run out in the middle of the road? He really does discipline us. Expect discipline as you're growing. Um, aim for peace with one another. Another thing that Hebrews reminds us of, that that we really are supposed to have an effect to this conditioning, this discipline, that we are people of Salem, of peace. 
that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, right? And then um, anamnesis, which means to remember. Hebrews reminds us again and again and again not to forget. Don't forget. Don't forget what Jesus has done. Don't forget that the old priesthood is canceled out and complete now. Don't forget that Jesus is the Son of God. Don't forget that he's the Word made flesh. Don't forget. Don't forget. Don't forget. Don't forget. Next time you take communion, think about what we've read in Hebrews. Next time you take, and that little tiny cup of juice or wine, whatever, that this represents the blood of Jesus. Remember the blood of boats, of boats, of bulls and goats. I did it. Boats, bulls and goats. Remember that his blood is superior to this. And what a strange thing we're doing. We're not putting the blood on us. We're putting it in us. Food for our souls. To remember, remember, remember. And then I've always seen Hebrews 13 as like a New Year resolution. Because Hebrews 13 is just sort of this miscellaneous, like when you... Like when you say to somebody, I got to go, oh, but I got to tell you one more thing. That's what Hebrews 13 is like to me. <coughs> Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to, entertain, to angels without knowing. Entertaining angels. <laughs> Don't forget those in prison. Verse 4, keep your marriage bed pure. Verse 5, don't fall in love with money. Be content with what you have. Verse 6, remember the Lord is your helper. Don't be afraid. Verse 7, remember your leaders. Verse 8, don't get carried away by all kinds of strange teaching. Verse 11, the high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. Now look at this. This is profound. Verse 12, and so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make his people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp bearing the disgrace he bore. Jesus was pushed out in disgrace, and he invites us to join him there. Oh, and then verse 15, through Jesus, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. I'm going to give you a job now. You've been here all week. Thanks for listening. This is your homework for, the, for tonight. I want you to sing with the greatest gumption you have tonight in the tabernacle. I want the people around you to be led in worship by you. Okay? Aaron, is that okay? Is what I'm saying all right? I want you to belt it out. I want the raptors to lift a little bit. That newspaper that we were talking about yesterday on the thing, I want it to like fall down because we're singing so <laughs> Offer the sacrifice of praise. It, it's amazing what happens when you just have a few people in a few sections, especially the back, leading. It just goes... That's right. Yeah. Have confidence in your leaders. Verse 17, verse 18, pray for us. And then here's your benediction. This is Hebrews 13, 20. And this is what I say to you, my brothers and sisters. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. And I say to you, grace be with you all.